I'm someone who loves trying out different makeup looks, but doesn't really wear much on a daily basis, so I like to focus on making sure I have high quality staples. And whether you like a fresh face, full glam, or somewhere in between, you've probably seen Thrive Cosmetics Viral Tubing Mascara. I've certainly seen it everywhere, you know the one in the turquoise tube? So that mascara, along with all of Thrive Cosmetics beauty products, are certified 100% vegan and cruelty-free, which I look for in makeup, and they've got excellent quality to match. And something I didn't know from all the mascara videos I've seen is that for every product sold, Thrive Cosmetics donates either that same product, another product that is needed more, or a monetary donation. They've worked with over 500 nonprofits to help with a wide range of causes like supporting cancer survivors, people experiencing homelessness, education access, and so much more. Knowing that makes me feel even better about using their products. And I do enjoy using them. Like I said, I like having high quality staples, and so my favorites are products that are multi-purpose, like the Brilliant Eye Brightener. It comes in a bunch of colors, and I like using them as eyeliner, eyeshadow, and even highlighter. Thrive Cosmetics is luxury beauty that gives back. Right now, you can get an exclusive 20% off your first order at thrivecosmetics.com thrive. That's Thrive Cosmetics, C-A-U-S-E-M-E-T-I-C-S, dot com slash thrive for 20% off your first order. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America NA, member FDIC. Welcome to another episode of Reppin. Hoping everyone is safe. Currently, the world is in crisis, fighting the coronavirus, and we're getting our information from the news, which is brought to us by reporters and journalists. But who are they? What experiences have they had that shape how they process that information and in turn can color how their reports are presented to us? My next guest is one of those people who brings that information to the general public. He's a doctor, healthcare researcher, and educator at the Indiana University School of Medicine. He's also a regular contributor to the New York Times, as well as many other major media outlets. He also has a popular YouTube channel called Healthcare Triage, where he talks about all things healthcare. Today, my guest is Dr. Aaron Carroll. How are you? <laughs> I keep people asking that question, and my answer is always about as well as can be expected. Because um, what does fine mean anymore, or good? Like it's all relative, and and no one I think is in a good place right now. Um, but I'm certainly I'm doing well considering the circumstances. Well, that's good. I mean, you look well, and it's certainly good to see you despite this insane situation that we find ourselves in today. For the audiences, give me an introduction. Can you sort of lay out a little bit about your background and some of the sort of the cascade of work that you do? Sure. First and foremost, I became a doctor. I went to medical school at the University of Pennsylvania, um, graduated in 1998, thought I wanted to be a pediatrician, went to do residency in, at Seattle Children's Hospital at the University of Washington, um, but very quickly 
while I was a resident, I realized that I was incredibly frustrated with the practice of medicine. The system is so broken that I could not get my patients what they needed, that even trying to get services or healthcare was so difficult. And I became so frustrated that I toyed with with abandoning all of this. And then I was very lucky that I had some mentors um, at Seattle Children's Hospital who said, you know, you can make a career out of fixing the healthcare system. And I said, well, that sounds great, sign me up. So I got a fellowship in the Robert Wood Johnson Clinical Scholars Program, which at the time was sort of uh, the biggest health services research fellowship for physicians. Um, and I became what's what a health services researcher. So what is that? Health services research is mostly focused on how do we improve the quality, cost, and access to the healthcare system, trying to, to do research at a large level, not on a drug or an individual intervention, certainly not basic science. How do we improve the healthcare system? I was interested in pediatric health services research uh, with a focus on how do we use computers and electronic health records and clinical decision support mostly to improve pediatric care. Over the years, I have continued to do health services research. A lot of my original focus was on, like I said, electronic medical records and clinical decision support. But more broadly, I've become more and more interested in healthcare financing reform and, you know, healthcare reform as we broadly see it. I have become much more interested in policy and how we can do things to improve the quality, cost, and access to the healthcare system. Um, when the Affordable Care Act was really getting debated and taking off in 2008-ish, I got into blogging partially because I was frustrated by the lack of evidence uh, being brought to the discussion of how we reform the healthcare system, and partially because I realized at some point that my job was writing, and I'd never been trained to be a writer, and I knew that the only way you get good at something is by practicing. And so I started the blog because I said, I'm going to write 800 words a day every day for two years until I get good at writing 800 words. And it worked. After blogging for years and years and years, um, during which was sort of the golden age of blogging, I was offered more opportunities to write for regular media audiences. And so today, my job, I divide things into three buckets. There's still sort of the health services research that I do um, in the sense that like we still do research and I'm a you know funded researcher from the NIH and from ARC and from, from foundations. Secondly, I have a number of administrative roles. I uh, am very interested in mentorship. I run most of the major mentorship programs for the School of Medicine at IU. Um, I also am in charge of education and workforce development for our Clinical Translational Research Institute. And the third bucket is science communication. That's, like I said, starting with the blog, but these days I write pretty regularly for the New York Times uh, at the Upshot. And I more recently have been writing for the Atlantic during this coronavirus crisis. We also have a pretty popular YouTube show called Healthcare Triage. And I'm super interested in how do we do a better job of disseminating health research, health policy, and just health information to the general public. It's busy. There's a lot going on. Um, and this crisis has only intensified everything where all of those buckets are, you know, overflowing. So you're juggling buckets. You're juggling very full buckets. It's a busy life. Um, Indeed. You ever, read the, you ever read the Phantom Tollbooth? Yeah, yeah, for sure. So I love, it's like, it's probably somewhere on the shelf over there in my background, but it's like, but I, I point to it all the time because the, the theme of that is like, if you don't know something's impossible, then it's not. Right. <laughs> 
And so I try very hard not to look behind the curtain about how all this gets done, because then I think I'd freak out. So as long as I can keep all the balls in the air, I try not to think too hard about it. They all seem to be doing okay. So there's a couple of things that I sort of wanted to, to touch upon that you hit on. You talked about overhauling the, a broken system, being frustrated at how, is it fair to say that the system is dysfunctional? The whole healthcare system in the United States is broken. I mean, if you follow me on social media or read anything that I write or any videos that I make, I am utterly appalled by American exceptionalism when it comes to our healthcare system. I, I just literally recoil every time a politician feels compelled to say, we're best in the world. I want to be like, on what metric? Literally, what are you picking? Because I can't figure it out. Our cost is sky high. Our access is amongst the worst. Um, and our quality is, you know, middling. It's not great. And so I, and what metric is that being said? So so one of my my first sort of big paper that I we actually did in fellowship was uh, I was raised in a reasonably conservative household. I don't like to get political, but like my dad is a surgeon and uh, I really sort of was indoctrinating this idea that we have the phenomenal healthcare system and government needs to get out of it. And when I was a fellow, we had as part of our program, this this sort of retreat where we were learning about the healthcare system and economics and a couple people were there and they were talking about single payer. It was the first time I was introduced to single payer. And this is like in the, you know, 2001-ish, 2000, I mean, long time ago with respect to single payer. Back then, like no one was really pushing single payer. Right. Bernie Sanders was like the only guy. Right. And so I remember listening to some people talk at that conference and being like, you know, these dirty hippies have no idea what they're talking about <laughs> because they kept saying that doctors would support this. And I was like, doctors will revolt. And I'm going to go out and do a survey that proves doctors will never support single payer healthcare. Um, so this other fellow and I did what was is still probably the largest survey ever done of physicians, certainly looking at healthcare reform. We've surveyed like 5,000 physicians or so. We said like, would you support national health insurance as it's defined and a bunch of other stuff. And the results came back and it turned out more physicians supported national health insurance than opposed it. Blew my mind. <laughs> like literally like, I was like, oh my God, what the hell's wrong? And I started reading more about it as I was writing up the results. And I was like, oh my God, you know, what else am I wrong about? <laughs> it, was, uh, it was one of those, you know, epiphany moments in, I suppose, any good researcher's life when I was like, I'm, I don't know anything. And I started reading everything I could on health insurance reform and everything else. And I realized like, I'm all these sort of talking points that I'd been fed about American exceptionalism and, and what was great about the healthcare system were not right. right. Um, and so I got much more involved even from an advocacy standpoint back then in my career. I was on the board of physicians for National Health Plan and I was much more, you know, like we really need to start talking about single payer more. Now I will admit I've come back from that a bit because um, as certainly as the Affordable Care Act came out in a non-political way, I am for anything which makes cost, quality, and access to the U.S. healthcare system better. I think that single payer these days is a viable way to improve the access to the United States healthcare system. There's no question it will do that. If we have used it as a lever to set cost controls, also reduce the spending, but it has trade-offs in terms of, and it's like, and I feel like it's important to discuss all these trade-offs. And in fact, years, two, two, three years ago, we did a thing where we actually ran like a, a March Madness thing for like healthcare systems in the New York Times. and Switzerland won. Um, and Switzerland is not a single payer system. It is a 
highly regulated private insurance system, but it it achieves great access, universal access, phenomenal quality, and a cost that's high anywhere in the world but us. So I just think I've come more, you know, full circle to the idea that there are many ways to reform the healthcare system, and I'm somewhat mystified that the only one we talk about is Canada. Maybe that's again because. That's what Americans do. We only talk about what we can see. Nothing exists that's not attached to us or important. I don't know. Right. <laughs> it's like it's baffling to me that we only ever debate sort of status quo and single payer. I think there are tons of valid models out there by ways we could improve the healthcare system, make it significantly better, improve access, quality, and cost in ways that might be even better than, you know, choosing single payer. It's it bothers me when people say like the rest of the world does it that way. The rest of the world does not do it that way. Canada does. But but a lot of other healthcare systems are not single payer healthcare systems and they're phenomenal. So I would rather us focus on just good ways to reform and do the things we need the healthcare system to do in an apolitical way. I think you're right. I think sometimes that are perspective is quite limited and we just sort of reference what's literally right in front of us and we sort of forget that there are other options out there that we can consider. So let's start with what made you want to become a doctor and then what that was like when you started to realize that what we had been brought up to believe was not true. So I'm going to be atypical in the sense of like, I'm going to try to be honest about- Go for it. <laughs> no, 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 no. So <laughs> the major reason I was I, I wanted to be a doctor was because I was indoctrinated from a small child was that was what I was supposed to do by my parents. Got it. Um, my dad was a doctor. Every Halloween, I was dressed as a doctor. I don't remember <laughs> from wanting that, but Lord knows I was wearing those scrubs. Okay. I don't think that I ever truly considered other careers. And I don't say that with a huge amount of regret because- I love what I do now. Right. And I've gotten to do many, many things. And I don't know how I get to this position without having gone to medical school and becoming a doctor. So there's no anger in this, but sure. I don't know that it was ever like I, 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 I don't know that I ever really had a great concrete reason for why I wanted to be outside of like that was just expected. But when I got to medical school and I started going through the curriculum in the first two years, I was like, some of this seems like a waste of time. Like you could just look this stuff up. I don't know why I need to memorize the, you know, biochemical pathways and whatnot. Like, like this is ridiculous. This is just hoops. And then more concerning was when I got to the clinical years, like third and fourth year, um, I didn't love anything. Uh, I did not love the practice of medicine and almost any rotation. I mean, delivering babies is fun. You know, it's great. Don't get me wrong. You know, surgery can be interesting. And there were other things I like, but it was like, I wasn't in love with any of it. And to be very honest, pediatrics was the specialty like I disliked the least. I love kids. <laughs> okay. I mean, I really, truly love kids. I also think that most pediatric illness, at least this is how I felt at the time, was blameless. There were too many patients I saw where I was like, I can make you healthier if we could figure out ways to help you eat better, exercise, not drink so much, you know, not do drugs. Like a, a decent amount of poor health was lifestyle related, not so with children as much. Um, I also enjoyed dealing with parents and families uh, and parents and kids and talking about parenting issues and like the stuff that wasn't necessarily medical, like the social structure stuff that is so important in pediatrics that 
of course you can't build for and you can't do anything about, but that's what matters. Like that's what truly makes families and kids better. Right. When I got to residency and I, I was actually being a doctor, the, the system just was grinding me down. Like I just, I, I'd be in, you know, I'd be in a patient's room listening to the story of what was wrong with the family. And I was like, I can tell you how to make life better. Like child needs food and, and food security. You need a house. Mom and dad need jobs. We need a, you know, a family structure where we can actually like support what's going on. I can do none of that with a prescription pad. Right. Like I got nothing. And if I needed to give you something, you can't afford the copay. They're about to kick you off Medicaid because we make you re-enroll every three to six months. There were hoops that no one could figure out. This is insane. Like what right. are we, I'm not doing any good. And so it was so frustrating that I found myself being upset by the system more than I was able to do good. I, I get much more satisfaction these days out of trying to fix the system and raise all boats um, than to, to sort of deal with things on an individual basis. I appreciate your honesty about, you know, maybe not really being in love or passionate about being a doctor. I think there was a theme uh, of your always wanting to help people. Uh, that sort of thread through getting the truth out, helping people on an actual yeah. level that makes a difference. Yes. And I think it's a, uh, you know, that I, I view it now as like, I'm just trying to, I think I just am focused more on the population and the system than, than trying to do it one by one, which is super important. Thank goodness there are tons of doctors and, there, and everyone that wants to do that kind of work. Right. It's just not where I spend most of my time. Sure. Are you ready to shop? Rakuten's Big Give Week is back. Get 15% back at hundreds of stores, and it's all happening this week, May 6th to May 13th. It's the perfect time to shop for everything on your list for spring and summer, like clothing, outdoor gear, and travel. I know I'm using this week to stock up on some warmer weather essentials at Ray-Ban and Ulta, and I love that Rakuten even helps me save on travel at sites like Hotels.com. Rakuten really is the best way to shop, and you can save even more by stacking cash back on top of deals. Plus, during Big Give Week, that cash back is bigger than ever. With Rakuten, membership is free. And when you sign up and shop today, you get an extra 10% cash back boost. That's an extra 10% cash back on top of the 15% cash back. You won't see higher cash back rates than these. Go to Rakuten.com or download the Rakuten app. R-A-K-U-T-E-N. Shoppers get it. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com wonder. You know, you talk about fixing a broken system. It's not like it's one fix and it's done. It's obviously a very complicated problem that we have to address. Do you think it is possible that we could at least make some advances towards fixing the system? Well, yes. The answer is an obvious yes, because other countries have done it. I mean, other countries have totally overhauled their healthcare system. And right. there's no reason to believe we're not wealthy enough or smart enough or capable or resourced enough to do this. It's a matter of will. Right, um, but then different. So my question is this: So if that's the case, and it's been the case, what the hell are we waiting for? 
Well, everything's impossible until the second we do it. I mean, you can pick your pick your battle. It's uh, you know, there have been many moments of progress in the last say 10, 20 years of things that have radically changed. I, I mean, one that I like to point to all the time, again, not getting political, was that, you know, I can remember an election not that long ago where um, gay marriage was the wedge issue. Like, that's how we, you know, made, you know, that's how, you know, one side made sure that they got enough votes was by making that so crazily possible, you know, that the people would run to the polls because it was so dangerous. And then 10 years later, it's like the national law of the land. It's totally legal. Right, so. Right. It looks impossible right up until the moment it happens. You just sort of have to get to the will standpoint. The Affordable Care Act was impossible right up until it passed. And we've been fighting that battle since, you know, trying to see if it moves forward or not. But a lot of these things seem impossible until until right after we do them. And of course, the world is changing very rapidly at the moment yeah. with this virus. But like there's going to be downstream changes and implications for how this affects all kinds of healthcare issues, and it could drive substantial change. I mean, if we see hospitalizations spike as they likely seem to be right now, it could have a significant impact on health insurance premiums for next year as the actuarial values all, you know, as they sit down and try to figure out what they should be charging in terms of premiums. If everyone sees their insurance spike 40%, which some people say is possible, um, based upon all that's going on right now, there'll be riots. Uh, so, you know, th that might drive significant change. I just don't know. Right, right. So, you know, if, I don't know what the world will look like in a year. I'm having a hard time picking out what the world's going to look like in a month. Yeah, no, so, I agree. We are very loath to change our healthcare system. We do it really, really, really slowly. We make it as hard as possible, but that doesn't mean that it cannot change. And it's also important to know this is always a marathon, not a sprint. Um, Medicaid was passed in the 60s, much like the Affordable Care Act was passed in 2010. Um, and at first, Medicaid was optional. States did not have to pick it up. And again, passed in the 60s, the last step, the last state to accept Medicaid was, I think, Arizona. I think it was like 1985. 85! Like, that's when the last state took on Medicaid. And now, Medicaid is just so accepted that the Supreme Court ruled that if you threaten to take it away, it's so coercive that you couldn't predicate the medical expan the Medicaid expansion on losing Medicaid. And so we've seen more and more steps. States accept the Medicaid expansion, just like it, but it's a marathon again. It's only been ten years. Like these things are these things happen slowly. I would assume that when you work as a nurse or a doctor, you need to have a certain disposition and temperament, and and to be a little bit sort of steady yeah. because you're in crisis all the time. Now, Aaron, you have a reputation of being pretty even keeled, and that might be because you've worked as a doctor, but you've also covered a lot of different experiences that occur in the healthcare profession. Sure. And you can't be a, a reactive, hysterical person because we're looking to you for us <laughs> to help us. So you can't add gasoline to the fire. That seems to be my job more often than not is the calm down guy, the guy who's like... Uh, this isn't as bad as you think. This is not, you know, you're looking at a relative risk and an absolute risk. This is, you know, in the scheme of things, not that big a deal. Um, and that, you know, we totally overestimate the harms and risks from a lot of the things we do. Sure. And you're used to this. So you're yeah. very sort of very even keeled. But can you talk about, you know, having that 
disposition, how it helps you professionally, but also where you're at now with this, you know, fluid situation. I feel like we're in a little bit of a free fall here. I mean, I'm in New York, so I'm certainly in the epicenter of this coronavirus. So can you talk a little bit about how you needing to be the sensible voice, the calm down guys, you said, um, how that's been for you in the past and where you are now with this pandemic? So it's, yeah, it served me very well in the past in the sense that it's like it's a it's a nice steady gig <laughs> to tell people that they're worrying too much about stuff that they could be calm. And it, it works in all kinds of areas. You know, it inherently also makes you always look calm and rational. You know, you're not getting freaked out by anything. And I try to I'm very usually consistent in this. So it's not as if I get, I'm saying, don't worry about this, but freak out about that. It's it's almost always, it feels like, with very few exceptions, like reality is not nearly as bad as our fears. This time is different. I can, like I said, I remember it was a couple weeks ago, my, my editors at the Times had sort of pitched me on writing a piece that I felt was uh, sort of a, yeah, I know that we got to do this because it's scary, but there could be, you know, these downstream repercussions and maybe social distancing isn't such a good idea. And I was like, I cannot write that piece. Um, I don't think anyone is freaking out adequately. And I went on this sort of like email tirade about like, you know, this, this, that, and they were like, okay, well, you should write that up. And that was sort of the big first one that I wrote at the New York Times on what I thought was the real thing to fear about coronavirus. And it's what what you're unfortunately experiencing in New York right now, that we could absolutely overwhelm the healthcare system. Because if we do not flatten the curve, like this tidal wave is going to just overwhelm our capacity to care for the people who are truly ill. And that has continued in like things that I've written where it's been harder to write. Usually I write for news, which is like dispassionate and I'm finding it a little harder to be dispassionate than normal um, because this is bad. Like, I mean, and I've said this, I've written this, but I'll say it again. It's like, we have not faced a disease or an infection, which is this infectious this dangerous for which we have no treatment, no natural immunity, and no vaccine, we have not faced that since the 1918 flu pandemic, like what we call Spanish flu. Like this is worse than anything since then. Worst thing in a hundred years. We've had SARS and MERS, but they were not as contagious and we were able to put them down. And we've had flu pandemics, but we have some natural immunity to the flu and medicines and, you know, we can make vaccine. We know how to do that. Right. So it's, uh, this is new and it's bad and it's coming and it's coming fast and it's going to overwhelm it. And we are not prepared for it, certainly in North America, but also not in Europe. A lot of Asia went through SARS. They prepared, they know what to do. They know the measures that need to be taken. They've built facilities and created you know, procedures to handle this. We do not have that. We are not ready for this. And we're reacting appropriately, but often too slowly. Yeah. And without sort of a plan for moving forward. Right. So I have to ask you, Aaron, because you have been um, consistently steady, Freddie, both as a doctor and also as a journalist, you have sort of that dual perspective, you need to have that disposition of being a voice of reason to be sensible, to be calming. For you internally, when the coronavirus started to percolate overseas and here, can you describe what that internal switch was for you when you went from normally knowing, 
okay, you see the risks and benefits and you, you sort of know um, on an intellectual level, but also on an emotional level, how to deal with it. Can you talk about what that internal experience was like and what you were going through when you realized, holy shit, like I can't be that calm guy anymore. I'm now the guy that it needs to kind of really sound the alarms because, and I shared this with you, I was, con I was aware of it, but I didn't become like concerned with it until I saw your very like two line tweet that was like, that simply said, I'm usually the guy that says, don't worry, it's going to be all right. I'm not saying that anymore. And that's yeah, what made me alarmed. Time, so, yeah. yeah. It was a simple thing. Can you talk about that internal experience for you? So I think I'm trying to like, it's hard to pinpoint the exact moment. I think it's, you know, when I started looking at some of the Italy data and what was going on in Italy, um, that's when I started to, to really get concerned. This was before it came here though, right? Well, it was, it was like here, but very few cases. I mean, you know, and of course we weren't really testing, so we right. don't know, but I was in Europe on a work trip, the, like the third week of, or the last week of February into the very beginning. I think I returned on March 1st. We were in Switzerland oh and then God. the Netherlands. It was starting to ramp up there. And we had people on our trip who were preparing to go to Italy for like vacation purposes after this trip was over. And they had not yet made Italy like a level two country for travel, but we were all like getting squirrely, like because <laughs> everyone on the trip is a physician, um, you know, some in public health, but there was a trip of basically of doctors who were getting their MBAs. I was like, we were talking about it. And I'm like, I don't think, I don't think you should go to Italy. Like, this is not a good idea. Like this, this right. is not looking good, but it was just at the cusp. Um, and they didn't. We all went home. Okay. It was like, but as we were even in Europe, there were like cases appearing, like starting to pop up. And I was like, this is coming everywhere. And Italy was getting a little bit scary, the northern part of Italy. And we got home. And so I was like, you know, paying attention. And I was like, the rate of infection, the rate of death, the rate of hospitalization, this is not a slow, you know, this is exponential. This is really, really bad. And that's, right. I think that's when I started to get concerned. And then by, you know, a week or two later, it was like, it was bad. I think it also was coming to a head. We were supposed to go visit my, I was taking one of my kids and we were going to go visit my parents who live in Las Vegas. My mom's in memory care there. And my dad is not, he's like 75, he'll be 75 this year. And, you know, I was concerned for himself. But sure. the week before we were supposed to go, all of a sudden I was like, I don't think it's a good idea. And this is before everybody else locked down. But I was like, right. this is not. And I talked to my dad on Sunday and he was still, no, you should come. By Tuesday, we decided we were going to cancel it. By Friday, I was feeling like that was probably the right decision. But the rest of the country wasn't that yet there yet. Right. And on Saturday, like I was still having discussions with friends about, you know, should they be canceling big occasions and parties the next week? But no joke. By the by, Monday, Tuesday of that next week, the country had shifted. Like we were like right. lock it down, New York. Everything. So it was like it just went so fast. It was overnight, and I think it was just partially. I'd been in Europe when it was sort of going up, and and I'd been paying attention a little more closely, perhaps because of that. And you know, and then of course, just I voraciously read about this kind of stuff just for what I do. So I just was, I think, just slightly aware. It is amazing how fast these things have happened. People were like, it would be like, we're having a debate about whether to cancel this party to two days, you know, to three days later, like shelter in place. 
Yeah, but it's like what's really more horrifying is that there are still states which are fighting the shelter in place or closing yeah. businesses down. And, yeah. you know, we're still running mass transportation because we don't have other options. Right. I don't think this is going to end soon. No, no. I unfortunately agree with you. There were people in spring break that said they were pl- like planning this for two months and they weren't going to s- yeah. mess up their plans. Right. And there was also situations where they were like, I think it was Dallas Fort Worth airport where they had all these passengers sort of in this one section of the airport, shoulder to shoulder, packed in trying to get their bags. And it was a mess for you when you first started, like when you were overseas and your normal disposition is, I am the calm guy. Did you feel a switch internal where you started to feel alarmed? And that was sort of something that made you go, holy shit, this is like something really new. And this is something that I'm even going like, this is bad. It was after we got home. It was not while I was there. It was looking at data in Italy after we got home and starting to read stories or see stuff on social media of hospital systems being utterly overwhelmed. And this is, again, is where I was a little bit better prepared for this because I don't have this American exceptionalism. Like, I I still ran into people who were like, well, that's Italy, as if they're like a resource-deprived setting (laughs) and not a like fully functional, developed world. Like, I just, I'm like, what What the hell? What do you think is going on in Italy? Yeah. So I was like, okay, no, if that's happening there, we're in real trouble. And I think maybe I came to that conclusion just a little bit earlier because I'm not predisposed to think we're better off than other countries. Right. That's when the switch was. I think, you know what, it might have even been when I received that email from 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 my editors because I think that's when I just flipped. I was like, no, if you guys aren't taking like I assume everyone's taking this seriously. Like I'm freaking out of my office and like, and I see that I was like, no, 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 this, we got to, this is not okay. It's amazing to me constantly again and again, you want to believe that the people in charge know more than you. That's the hope. You want to believe that the people in charge are more capable than you. And I don't mean, when I say you, I don't mean me personally, but like, I assume that the people in charge are, you know, better than the people around me at work are better than no more than the people like in my small circle. Like I just assume that like they're getting data and knowledgeable. And you know, you imagine it's like the West wing on TV. They're being briefed by these super amazing people with these. And it's like, of course they're making the decisions. We can't, they have all the data and the information and access to the best experts in the world. And fortunately, like again and again, that turns out not to be true. There are many moments throughout, you know, the last, 30 years when I was like, I trusted people in power knew what they were doing. And then I was like, Oh God, they had no idea what they were doing. And so horrifying. Yes. And that's so there are individuals that I believe, you know, are on top of this, but I believe our government response has not been good. Yes. And our, you know, sort of collective response has been lacking in many ways and at many levels. And that is frightening. On the other hand, I know unbelievably competent and amazing people who are advising people at all levels of government too. So I have to have faith that they're they're going to get the information up there and we'll we'll get through this in the end. But it's always good to have that gut check, yeah, to rethink and make sure not just assume everyone knows what's going on and everyone is is fully aware of of what needs to happen. 
Right. You've written so many articles about so many different topics for the New York Times and a lot of other publications. Also for your YouTube channel, which is like super popular and really informative healthcare triage, where you give a lot of great information. Being now having that other perspective as somebody who is a journalist, who is an author, being somebody who has to get information to the public. What is it that is most important for you in terms of values and principles that you will always adhere to? We try to come from a place of data and evidence. People ask me all the time, will you do an episode on this topic? And I'm like, we don't we don't come from it in a topic standpoint. It almost always comes from a, I feel like there's a fair amount of data studies evidence that will tell us something that people don't know about. And so let's take all of that evidence and from that to have something to say about the world. Most of the things that I write about at the New York Times are come from a new study or a new finding, or or I just see something where people are saying something over and over, and I'm like, that's not supported by evidence. The evidence says something else. Let me explain what the evidence says. We come from a place of evidence uh, and data. And so what that means is that I'm rarely afraid that we're putting out something I'm going to have to backtrack on later, unless, of course, there's new data and study and evidence, in which case I will be the first person to backtrack. If tomorrow... They come out with a study which says everything I've said before is totally wrong, and that study is valid and huge. I will absolutely retract everything I said and explain why this new study trumps all of that. I have no problem with that. None of this is coming from a place of ideology or just belief. Um, and so it's it's very much of like we want to try to take data and studies and evidence and from that construct an argument as opposed to having an argument and then trying to go find data to back that up. So I, I will challenge you in the sense, and I'm playing devil's advocate here because I also work in the media, but I've worked with a lot of people where you go, you talk to um, various uh, representatives or experts who say one thing and, and, and then negate it the next day or sometimes, unfortunately, the next moment. Some people will use that, um, well, that's not the report that I had at the time. And you're like, that's actually been there, but they'll use that excuse to cover themselves. So what would you but say to people that- they're not telling the truth. I mean, it's like, that's right, the thing. That's it's, like, so it's like, that's the thing. So if I put out a piece in 2020 and I say it's based on evidence, and then you ask me a question in 2021 that's based on data and evidence from 2000, and I say, well, I didn't have that. I had the data and the evidence. The only way that my argument changes is if evidence after I made the statement comes out. Right. I, it's my job and responsibility to find all of the data beforehand. And if you can find data that, that trumps what I just said, if people let me know, I'll change my right that day. Right. Done. No, I hear like, you. I don't need to be right. That's not my thing. I just need to, to, to be able to feel like I've made the best argument that I can. I mean, part of, I think, why... I've been reasonably successful is that I do a pretty thorough job of trying to track down the evidence. Like I don't worry that there's a huge major study which trumps what I just said that I don't know about. I've looked pretty hard. Right. Um, and if, it, if it's that hard to find, then, then no one would know about it anyway. The bigger danger is when you know the data are not there and you still want to make the argument and therefore you make it with shaky support. I don't need to do that. That's part of like, I'm not a politician. No, I hear you. I'm not an advocate. Like I'm truly agnostic to the outcome as long as the outcome is based on this. This is why, like I said, I used to be more of a single payer supporter. And now I'm much more of like, I just want the healthcare system to be better. And I 
do not care how we get there. Right. As long as we are, have better access, quality, and cost. Single payer is a way to get there, but it has trade-offs and downsides, and there could be better ways to go. And I don't need to pick the path. I just know where the outcome is, and I want to get there. Well, let me ask you this. Based on like what's happening now, and also your past experiences as a doctor, going through the frustration of understanding how dysfunctional severely that this um, healthcare system is that we have, being disillusioned by it, and also being a journalist and covering all the ways that these people are uh, not getting the help that they need. How do you carry these experiences with you? And, and, and how does that sort of shape you as a person? Part of it is that this is a marathon and not a sprint. Right. Um, you know, change change happens slowly, but I think change happens. Uh, and I, I've been lucky enough to have some pretty large platforms with which to get, you know, what I consider better information out. And that is its own reward. And is you know, in on top of sort of trying to to help move the needle in various ways. But I think that you know, the science communication stuff is an outlet, and it is. It's as cathartic and help, helpful for me to do the work as I hope, well, maybe, I don't know, I don't, you can never measure the impact, but, you know, one of the benefits is it, it makes me feel better. <laughs> There's no question. Um, that was why I started the blog. One of the reasons was like, I just was frustrated at the, at the conversation and the argument, and I thought we could do better. And so I didn't care at the beginning if anyone else read it. It was helpful for me, and I'm glad it was helpful for others, and I hope as I do more and more of this, it's helpful for others as well. Um, but, but you know, change happens slowly. If you, if you expect that you say something once and everyone is going to listen and change their mind, that that's just not how it works. It's a, it's a slow, 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 steady race. You are presenting data. You're presenting information in a very easy to understand way. The humanity is never lost in any of the things that you cover. Is that hard to do for you? Is that something that you're conscious of and that you always want to make sure it's there? Well, I want to make sure it's there, but I don't know that it's hard. I'm a doctor. I'm also a patient. I have more than one medical condition. I'm a parent. I'm, you know, someone's child. I'm a friend. I'm I'm plugged into this whole system in almost every way that you could be and and I'm constantly amazed at how bad it is. I work with tons of doctors. I hear their frustrations. I know right. my friends all have medical. I hear their frustration. Like I'm the guy that everybody goes to to complain about the healthcare system. I know. Believe me, I know how bad it is. And also, this is where it's like I was not trained as a journalist. Like I don't come at this with a completely disinterested, you know, just the facts kind of style. Yeah. That's not what I do. I'm, I'm not an investigative journalist. I'm not. I'm not going to write like that. So, luckily, I've always sort of been at this bridge of sort of reporting and interpretation. I'm not I'm not ever going to be like a disinterested third party in all of this. Well, I'm part of the system in every way that you possibly can be. There's so many doctors that I, I, I'm in contact with and professionals that are all incredible and talented, but sometimes people are just so academic and yeah. your pieces never feel that way. What is the best advice that you've gotten that's helped you get through your frustrations that you can sort of pay forward? I feel like that, I mean, again, I feel like I've been lucky and that I, I do feel like I'm making a difference. And that, that makes things enormously easier um, because it is very easy to feel powerless. The things that I can do to help others is I, I try to make things better for those that come behind me. You know, from a mentorship perspective, it's like I, 
whatever issues or struggles I had to deal with, if I can make them better for those who I mentor, so much the better. I spend far more time helping people that I peripherally know navigate the healthcare system than I do being an actual doctor to patients. Because again, I think that I have, I know I'm networked. I like know how this works. I, I know where the strings are and where the levers are. And I can often help people get through the system in ways that is, you know, probably serving better than knowing what drug to give for what disease. Um, and I think, you know, part of it is just, you got to keep going. You got to, you got to just, this is, this is glacial work. Yeah. It requires constant attention and pushing it. Um, and I have frustrating days and I have, you know, my wife has to talk me down and say like, you know, don't, don't go crazy. Just let it go. And, you know, it's going to be fine. And you know, everything. And she's right. The, you know, making all this stuff better is, is slow. Um, and it requires lots of people pushing. We've talked about a lot of different things. You're wanting to help people. You're wanting to overhaul the system. You're being a calming voice. And also being realistic and going, yo, people, this is not the time to be calm. How would you define representation based on the conversations and all the sort of different notes that we've talked about in this past hour? You know, I know even though you asked me this in advance and I still, <laughs> um, I don't know. I think at a baseline, it's like, I think I represent all the people who know that this system is not okay and that it needs to be better um, and who are tired of hearing that it's the best in the world over and over and over again when we all know it is not. How can we all help help you and help ourselves move that needle forward? Well, I mean, look, at a concrete level, it's like uh, the way we change policy is by electing people who will change policy. That's it. Vote. Vote. Like, I don't understand people that vote against their own self-interest or who vote and then question or don't vote and then question why nothing changes. Like, there is one lever by which we can change policy in this country, and that's voting and putting pressure on the people that we elect. And so do that. All right. So, Aaron, I am going to have to press you to give me the signature sign off. Let me know who you are and what you represent. I'm Aaron Carroll. I'm a health services researcher, and I represent all the people who know that this system is not the best in the world. I want to thank my guest, Dr. Aaron Carroll, for coming to Reppin'. You can find him on Twitter at Aaron E. Carroll. His YouTube channel is Healthcare Triage, and be sure to read his articles in the New York Times. On the next episode, we have Jamie Margolin, who is a 19-year-old activist, author, media spokesperson, and she is the founder and co-executive director of the international youth climate justice movement called Zero Hour. The organization has led the official youth climate marches in Washington, D.C. and 25 other cities around the world. And yep, she's just out of high school. Reppin is available on Spotify, iHeartRadio, Apple Podcasts, and all top podcast platforms. So be sure to subscribe, share, and leave us a review. Find us on Twitter at Reppin Podcast and follow us on Instagram, Reppin underscore podcast, and you'll see who's coming up next and get exclusive behind-the-scenes content. Thanks always to Nelson Pinero, my technical director and musical composer, for his time and talent. And always, love and thanks to Gracie Kong. Reppin is a Suburban Outlaw Productions. Until next time, stand up and represent.
Hey there, this is Justin Bartha. I made a funny new podcast, King of the Egg Cream. It has the greatest cast in the history of podcasts with actors like Louis Black. I'm torn by my feelings for two women. Bobby Cannavale. You can eat it, or if someone hits you, you can put it on your cut. Melanie Linsky. I wonder what these marvelous things are that look just like boiled chicken feet. Jason Ritter. I can break things and pick locks and kill people. Michael Stuhlbarg. The whole point is to inspire people that they should make themselves better. Ari Grainer. No, don't whet its appetite. What are you, an idiot? Me, Justin Bartha. That's not just any egg cream, that's a Lemke's special. And all narrated by the hilarious Richard Kind. This is the story of Harry Dalowitz. And how he rose from nothing to become New York's King of the Egg Cream. So if you like funny true stories, come listen to King of the Egg Cream, available wherever you get your podcasts.